So we can watch a video like this, and it's all stock full of our favorite Christmas m- movies, right? It's got a nice uh, Christmas song behind it, and it begins to produce a certain kind of feeling. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? The Christmas spirit that's in the air? We see this really all over the place, right? Go to the mall. You see all the decorations. You see the hustle. And people are excited, and they're all carrying their several hundred bags of you know, clothing and toys and knickknacks that they just purchased for this holiday season. You come to a place like this, and all of a sudden, like, there's all these Christmas trees and decorations all around. There's a certain spirit in the air, they say. It produces a certain kind of feeling, right? All these songs and smells. And it was this kind of feeling, right? This kind of Christmas spirit that prompted Ed Pola in 1963 to write the classic Christmas carol, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year. As the lyrics say, there are kids who jingle bell. There are holiday greetings and happy meetings. There are parties to host, marshmallows to toast. There's caroling and there's ghost stories to tell. There's mistletoeing and there's hearts that are glowing and so on and so on and so on. And all of these things, the malls and the shopping and the decorations and the smells, they all produce this spirit that makes this time the most wonderful time of the year. And so Emily and I took our family to Sesame's Furry Christmas this past weekend. Actually, we're in the weekend, so when was that? I don't know, one of these days, Friday. And we watched a show called Elmo's Wish List. And Elmo was all saying, hey, what does this season mean to you? What is this season about for you? And of course, the things that he mentions are, well, it's all about hot chocolate, right? Because that's awesome. And it's all about huge presents and lots of presents. And it's all about uh, family getting together, which is important. It's all about the spirit of the air. It's all about the feeling that we get. It's all about the externals is what he was trying to communicate, right? The friends and the trees, the shopping, the cookies, the chocolate. It's about the externals. It's about the spirit of the season, which we produce through lights and which we produce through decorations, which we produce through the smells and through the tastes. Is that my wife's phone? Really? (laughs) Emily. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh, that's right. So that's what the world is trying to tell us, right? About the, about the holiday, about the feeling, about the spirit. But we know better. We know better, right? We know that this time is the most wonderful time of the year because it is this time of the year that we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, the rescue of God coming down to earth to save us from our calamity, to save us from our sins, to save us from the situation that we all, every single one of us, find ourselves in. And it makes it a truly wonderful time of the year. It's the most wonderful time of the year because good news has been announced to all of creation. The angel told Joseph, as we just heard, name the child Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. And so right here at the birth of Jesus begins this climax of a long story that's being told. But it's a story that's often forgotten. It's the story of the gospel, beginning not with Jesus, but in Genesis. And so today we're going to begin our Christmas series titled, 
the most wonderful time of the year. It's a walkthrough, really, of Matthew 1 and 2. Now, we're going to start at verse 18 today. And so, for all of you who are really sad that we're not talking about the genealogy this morning, that long list of names, don't worry, we're going to get back to that on week four, okay? So, uh, get prepared, because that's, that's, that's a really exciting portion of scripture, actually. And so, and so uh, hang in there for week four. If you have your Bibles open, uh, or with you, I encourage you to open them up to the book of Matthew. It's about two-thirds of the way through your scripture. Open them up to the book of Matthew, starting at chapter 1, verse 18. You know, before I actually do that, can anyone tell me what verse 23 says? Anybody have their scripture with you this morning? What does verse 23 say? Read it out loud. Anybody? Can you read it out loud? 23. They will call him Emmanuel. Which means God is with us. God is with us. God is among his people. God is present. You know, this one theme of God's presence among his people really, in a lot of ways, sums up the entire gospel message. Now, I know that seems strange considering that we usually take the gospel and we apply it only to the death of Jesus and to the resurrection of Jesus. We tend to forget his birth and his life throughout that whole process. And more than that, we even forget the entire Old Testament when we think about the gospel message. And here is why I think, in part, we've partially got this wrong, that the gospel only applies to, say, the New Testament and not the Old. I mentioned this before, but in 2007, there was a phenomenon in children's literature that that took over the entire world. July 21st, book 7 of the Harry Potter series came out. Emily and I were headed to Boston that morning. We caught a flight out of the Minneapolis airport, headed to Boston, and there were already crates full of this book all over the airport. We left at 5 a.m. that morning, and there were already people who looked as if they were halfway through the book. People everywhere you went were reading this book. They, you, you couldn't put it down. It was crazy. Go to the airport, people in the airplane uh, flying. You land in Boston, people in the cafe, people at the pier, people at the restaurants, people walking down the streets reading this book. You could not get away from it. This book was everywhere. And so I felt like I was missing out, right? I'd never read the Harry Potter books, and so I said, I got to get into this craze. And so I called my brother-in-law, who we're going to see a week later, and I asked if he had any of the Harry Potter books. He said that he did, but that he only had book four with him. And so well, what do I do? Do I, do I wait another two weeks until I'm finally at home where I can get the first Harry Potter book and read from there, or do I start with book four? What would you guys do? Wait? What? You don't wait when you're sitting on the beach and you have Harry Potter in front of you, and so what do I do? I sit down on the beach and I start reading book four. But nobody does that. Who does that? I do. Thank you. I do, Right? Any logical person would say to start with the first book. It only makes sense, right? The beginning is where you learn about the problem of Voldemort and what a muggle is and who Harry Potter is and and what Hogwarts is. By book four, you already are well into the story and many of the references and storylines don't even make sense because you don't have the previous context. But I didn't care. I started reading book four. 
So when you open up a 200-page book, for instance, do you tend to start at page 120? Where do you start? Page 1. And yet when I came to faith in Jesus Christ as a high school student, I had a mentor, and he said, you know what, I think you should start in the Gospel of John. And I said, oh, that, that, sounds, that sounds good. I should start reading in the Gospel of John. But you know what? The Gospel of John is on page 884 in my Bible. Do you know how the Gospel of John begins? In the beginning. It's a clear Old Testament reference to Genesis 1. John is obviously trying to say something about Jesus in reference to Genesis 1, but I had no idea because what? I had never read Genesis 1 before. I started on page 884. And how many of us do that? We say, man, this is a long book, and I think Jesus seems like he's the most important character, so I guess I'm just going to read Jesus. I'm going to start on page 884, and all that other stuff in the Old Testament that seems mundane and boring, eh, who cares? It, It can't be that important. Oh, but guys, we're doing such a disservice to the gospel if we do not understand where the gospel comes from. If we do not understand the context for which the New Testament was born, we're doing such a disservice. We know that in Genesis, God creates a good creation. He creates a good creation, and this good creation is swimming with his love. It's endowed with his very present presence, and he actually walks among his creation, it says. But his good creation was subject to sin with the rebellion of Adam and Eve. And this rebellion ushered sin into our world. And so all of the problems in the world can be all found and find their source back, way back in Genesis 3. As we wield our self-rating hearts, right, it creates all the problems that we experience in life. And so take an inventory real quick of all the pain that you experience. Take a quick inventory of all of the struggles that you have. Take an inventory of all of the hatred within your workplace and all the chaos within your household. Take an inventory of all of the frustration within your own heart. All of it can find its way back to when a serpent told Adam and Eve to eat of a tree called the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis 3. So Genesis says, as God is addressing the serpent for having lied to his children, Cursed are you above the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And get this, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. My friends, this is where the gospel begins. In Genesis 3, 15, he will strike your head. And whose head is he going to strike? The serpent's head. The, The very problem of evil, the very source of all the frustration and chaos in the world, Jesus Christ, this this offspring of, mar- uh, of humans will strike the head of the serpent even while the serpent strikes his heel. 
That in our pain and our hurt and our frustration, our sin and our divorce, and children disrespecting their parents, and brothers slandering each other, and bullies picking on kids at school, and drug dealers manipulating young women into sex trafficking, and children starving to death, and anger that lashes out at children, and spouses, and random people on the street, and lust-ridden societies, and homes, and impatience on highways, and the self-reigning heart, and racial injustice, and gender inequality, among all of these and everything else that the serpent lies behind, God has an answer for it. And the answer is found back in Genesis 3 when God said, I'm going to raise up an offspring, a human child that will stomp upon the serpent's head even while the serpent strikes his heel. And his name is Jesus. The plan of God from the beginning was that he would send his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die. And we see that all the way back in Genesis 3.15 where the gospel begins. The promised offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent even while the serpent will strike his heel. And so through the suffering of the Messiah, through the suffering of this Messiah, God's good world would be restored. That God would once among walk among his people. That his presence would be manifest. His presence would be known here on earth. And that the curse would be reversed. And this is where the gospel of Jesus Christ begins. That through him the problem with the world is solved and God's presence is reestablished in creation. And so here is where I want to open up to Matthew 1. Beginning at verse 18. It says this, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our ears to hear your word and to receive your word this morning. Father, do a good work in us. Father, may this season, as we celebrate and reflect on this Advent, Father, the arrival of your Son into this world to redeem us and to forgive us and to rescue us, Father, may that do a good work in us. Continue to change us, Father, we do ask. In your name we pray. Amen. So it begins by saying, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. Now, Matthew 1 and 2 especially draw heavily on the fact that in this child— is the culmination of the entire biblical story. That everything was leading up to this little baby lying in this manger in this rural town of Bethlehem. And this is one of the reasons why Matthew was so intentional on beginning with that genealogy, which we'll talk about in a couple weeks. 
He's so intentional about describing him as the Messiah. It's a word that's so densely packed. The, the, the word Messiah is so densely packed and has so many meanings to it. But at the very bottom line, the Messiah refers to that little infant baby that Genesis 3.15 was referring to. That the Messiah would be the one, the anointed one of God, who would come and redeem the world, rescue the world, who would put the serpent to death even while his heel was being striked. And everyone knew that the Messiah would come through the line of David, from the line of Judah. But there's a problem. Lineage rights always came through the father's line, not the mother's. And so what Matthew is really eager to explain here is how Jesus, having no earthly father, could actually still be of the tribe of Judah. How does that make sense, right? He's conceived of the Holy Spirit. He has no earthly father. His father's not of the tribe of Judah. How does it make sense that the Messiah, who we know would be the son of David from the tribe of Judah, how does it make sense that he is who he says he would be? And so Matthew's emphasis really in this passage is on the naming of Jesus for the angel's command. That as Joseph receives in this vision, in this dream, to name the baby Jesus, that is the very act of adoption. And that is what Matthew was so eager to describe here. And so there, laying in a manger, is the baby Jesus, God incarnate, God with his people, the one who would take away their sins. But in the Jewish people, in their day, were looking for a sign from God. They were looking and waiting for that Messiah to come, but they all expected this military leader. They didn't expect a little baby boy to be born into a manger. If anything, the baby was to be born into a palace. Under the, under the royal garb where he could rise up with all of the successes of life. That one day he could actually take that scepter in his hand and that white horse and he could ride and he could defeat the oppressive Romans. All of the Jewish people were waiting for God's Messiah, but nobody anticipated that it would look like this. And so God is not doing what the people expected. Does God ever really do what we expect him to do? He's not doing what the people expected, but he's doing something deeply embedded within the history of his people. And so to back up for a moment, Joseph really didn't have the easiest go at this whole naming Jesus thing. We're told in verse 18 that Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. And so in order to understand this, you really need to understand how the Jewish marital system worked in their day. It happened in three steps, and the first was engagement. Engagement actually took place when children were very young. And it was determined by the children's parents or by a matchmaker who this person would eventually marry. And so Mary was probably between the age of like 12 or 14 when she was engaged to Joseph, who was probably around the age of 18. They'd probably been engaged actually for several years at this point, although they probably didn't really know each other all that well. Their parents had come together and made an agreement that my daughter would marry your son type of thing. But eventually, there was a betrothal. And it was in this period that they are when Jesus is born. Joseph had already paid the bridal price, which meant that he was legally married to Mary. 
And so if he wanted to break off the, marry, the marriage, he had to actually go through a legal process of divorcing her. And during this period, the groom would leave his bride for roughly a year, though it was an indeterminate amount of time. He would go back to his father's house, where he would begin an extension on his father's house. He would begin to build his own home, where he and his wife and their family would eventually live and grow up. And so he went back for a year or so to build an addition. And it's during this time when Joseph was away that he learned that Mary was pregnant. Now, Joseph was a a man, as it says, that was faithful to the law. He knew the law well, and so he knew what his options were. And he had several of them. He had had one, he could could take Mary, he could go back, retrieve Mary, he could drag her by the hair out into the middle of the streets. He could proclaim her infidelity before all of their community, and he could encourage his neighbors and his friends to pick up stones and to stone her to death. It's option one. Option two would be a little less severe, though equally shameful, in the sense where he could drag her out into the streets and publicly proclaim her infidelity. And they would just point their finger at her. And forever she would have to live with the guilt and the shame of being an adulterer within her community. It's kind of like an ancient scarlet letter, if you will. But he doesn't choose to do either of those. It says he's a righteous man. And so there is this third component, which is union, consummation, and marriage. When the extension on the father's house is finished, the groom goes back to the bride to receive her. And when he arrives, they engage in a ceremony of marriage where they then consummate the marriage, which is then they go back to live in their father's house. It is now official. They celebrate. It is now an official marriage. Joseph had decided that he wasn't going to do this. I'm going to divorce her quietly. I'm not going to put her through the disgrace. I'm not going to put her through the shame. That's a horrible. I'm not going to stone her in the middle of the street. That's horrible. I'm going to divorce her quietly. He decided he was going to do this, but as he is sleeping, he receives a vision. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So here's the challenge with this. They knew plenty well how babies are made in their day. And now Joseph and Mary are going to have to go back to their community wed. And she's, what, seven months pregnant? Man, this is scandalous. This is like what all of the magazines are going to be knocking on their door trying to get the latest uh, articles, right? This is TMZ at its prime, ancient TMZ right here. This is scandal. Scandalous. Man, in their day, you do not uh, have premarital relations or adulterous relations. In their day, this is like the most scandalous thing that could have been had between a married couple. You're going to go marry a pregnant woman that's not your, holding your baby? That's crazy, Joseph. Don't be afraid, the angel tells him. Are you kidding me? Do you realize the ridicule and the rebuke I'm going to receive from my family and from my friends when I go home? Do you, do you realize how crazy this looks to the public eye? That I'm marrying a woman who is carrying a child that is not my own? This is crazy, angel. You've got to be kidding me. Don't be afraid. 
That's crazy. But in faith, Joseph actually does what is commanded him. He marries Mary and he endures the public shame alongside her. And it says in verse 22 that all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so remember that in Genesis 1, God walked among his people. And God throughout the Old Testament dwelt with his, with his people in various ways. If you remember the Exodus, God was with his people in a pillar of, uh, of smoke during the day and a pillar of fire during the night. And as they eventually get into the wilderness, they construct a tabernacle. And God is within the tabernacle where the people actually construct their camps around the tabernacle. So God is the very center of their community. Eventually when they get into the temple, they construct this temple. And the very presence of God dwells in the Holy of Holies, the very center of the temple. God has always been with his people. And even when the people are going to exile because of their sin and infidelity to God, they go into exile and the people come back from exile into the land that God had promised them. They go back into Jerusalem, they build the walls and they build the city, but God's reign does not return alongside them. And so these people are longing for the presence of God. That is what we want, God, come back into our society, come back into our land. God, make your presence known here. This is what we want. This is what we're longing for, God's presence to be here. And so the people came back into the land, but God's reign had not returned, right? They were ruled by the Persians and the Assyrians and the Greeks and the Romans. And so from roughly 500 B.C. all the way up until... Jesus' time, the Jews believed that they were in spiritual exile. We might be in the land, but God isn't in the land. And that is why they were looking and hoping for a Messiah that would be a warrior king. One with a scepter in his hand, riding that white horse that could come and defeat the oppressive Romans to reclaim his throne. And God is giving them a Messiah, just not in the way anyone was expecting. All of the Jews were waiting for God's return. All of the Jews were waiting for God's return. And for the Jews, this was the best news that they could have received, that God had come back again among his people. It was the gospel they were waiting for. And so, for Matthew, the gospel begins with this pronouncement that God is once, among, once again among his people. And that is incredibly good news, that he would dwell among his people. And in this baby, Emmanuel, God is with us. This is such good news to the biblical authors. This is the best news they could have heard. God is once again among his people. And really, without this description of the Emmanuel, that God is with his people, giving the name Jesus to this baby really doesn't mean a whole lot. Right in verse 24, we see that when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took Mary as his wife. He did not consummate the marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. You know, Jesus was like the most common name of their day. When Emily and I each, uh, when we had our our three children, we were deciding on the names that we were going to give them. We gave them Ethan, Luke, and Sophia. Can anybody guess what the top three names (laughs) are? Of their, uh, of their day was when they were born? Ethan. 
Luke and Sophia, right? We're not very creative, I guess. Or we just really like the names. That's kind of what Jesus was like. You know, when Jesus gets into kindergarten, he's going to be like one of nine other Jesuses in his first grade class, or in his kindergarten class. It's not a unique name. It's not a special name. Everybody had the name Jesus. It was very, very common. But it is this Jesus. With the name, God is our salvation. Couple this salvific promise of his name with the promise that God is once among his people and you have this combination, this beautiful combination of God's gospel. That God is with his people to save his people. God has come into the chaos of the world to rescue his people. It is the fulfillment of the Old Testament story. It is the cure for all of the sin in the world. It is this Jesus and no other Jesus. None of the nine other Jesuses in his kindergarten class. It is this Jesus and no other that will rescue his people from their sins. And I think this Christmas we need a rescuer. We need our Emmanuel. We need our Messiah. We need a God who is present to rescue us from our sin. Because I think we live in a really messed up and crazy world. Do you guys agree with that? How many of you followed the uh, Ferguson, Missouri situation? Whatever side you take on that doesn't matter. In regards to the reality, there is a problem with the human condition, is there not? Then man could could take a, a gun into a street and kill anybody? That we would create these weapons that we hold in our hands that destroy human lives? And then when a verdict doesn't go the way that we want it to, we actually go and burn down entire city streets? We, 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 we take these businesses that our neighbors own, the people we have grown to be in community with and love, and we burn their businesses to the ground. And there's a million other stories that could be told in regard to that and any other number of situations going on in the world right now. I read this morning about an article of a Chinese man who is suing his wife because he believes his child is ugly. $120,000 and he wins the case. Is there any unconditional love left in the world? Is the world messed up? Now, these are all external things, right? We could talk about our own households. We could talk about the way we treat our spouses. We could talk about the way we treat our children. We could talk about the experiences our children are having in their classes and in their schools and in their hallways. We can talk about the issues of self-worth and self-denial, the percentage of young Men and women who commit suicide every year. How people go into abortion clinics by the hundreds of thousands every year. And if we just keep all of the problems at an arm's length, 
If all the problems are out there in the world, then the Emmanuel, the God with us, really is not going to be meaningful to you this holiday season. And so I want to give you an opportunity to reflect on the chaos that's going on in your own heart. The chaos that's going on in your own household, maybe. Where is the sin that resides within your life? And in what area of your life are, are, are you self-consumed? Are you self-gratifying? Are you selfish? Because we live in a world of limited resources, and so if I'm ever selfish in a situation, that means that someone else is going without. And so how... Has that sinful problem that we discussed impacted your life? Where is it evident? Where is it true? We are told that Jesus is our Emmanuel. We are told that God is with us. And this is an incredible concept. Because God, it says, is not far off. Like all the other deities in their day, who sat upon their thrones off in the distance, watching the world turn as entertainment, having no concern or care for the world. But we serve the true God who is not far off, but comes near his people. And he does it for a purpose, right? He does it for a purpose. He does not cower at the brokenness and the chaos that his world is suffering under, but he says, I will come down to rescue my people. I will engage my people. I will enter into their brokenness. I will enter into their chaos, and I will rescue it. I will save it. God is with us, and this truth and this acknowledgement this Christmas season, making it the most wonderful time of the year, changes everything. Because reflect again on the chaos within your household and reflect again on the chaos in your heart and reflect again on the chaos within your streets. Are you wounded this morning? Because where God is, there is healing. Are you depressed this morning? Because where God is, there is joy. Are you imprisoned to past shame and guilt in something you did a very long time ago? Because where God is, there is forgiveness. Are you broken this morning? Does your household seem like it's in ruins, emotionally or quite physically? Because where God is, there is wholeness. Are you at war this morning with your neighbor or with your spouse or with your children? Because where God is, there is peace. Do you have a heart that is full of hatred? 
and anger and malice because where God is, there is love. And in this Christmas season, we celebrate a God who has come near us. And God is present. He is our Emmanuel. Where God is, there is restoration. And where God is, there is new creation. And he has taken all the pain and the sorrow and the mourning and the crying and all the old order of things, all the brokenness and the chaos and the hatred and the envy and the lust, the malice, the slander, the gossip, the broken homes, the broken individual lives, the broken workplaces, all the hatred and frustration and selfishness in the world. And he has taken it upon himself. He has come present so that his self could heal us, could rescue us, could forgive us, could give us new life and new creation, that his new creation would begin now. Restoration Church, you don't have to stay enslaved to your brokenness. You don't have to stay enslaved to your guilt and to your shame and to the hatred and the selfishness. Because in Jesus Christ, God has come near to rescue you from that state. He is our Emmanuel. He is present, and he will do just that if you call upon his name. God is with us. Amen? Amen. I pray this holiday season, and I'm going to invite Emily and Barb forward. I pray this holiday season that as you go to the mall, And then you try to wade through the chaos of buying presents for people, for spending just the right amount of money and not too much or not too little, and balancing that act. As you wade your way through the decorations and the hustle and the traffic. That is, you sit among the trees and the flickering lights. None of these are necessarily bad things, by the way. As you sit among the feeling, right? That this is the most wonderful time of the year because of carolers and marshmallows and snowmen and all those wonderful things. That you would remember what the season is really about. That God is with us. Amen? And where God is, there is restoration.